double Elvis. Dear young rocker, there will be times when you feel completely isolated from the outside world. When you feel like you can't speak, the silence is so strong. But you can type and you can write and try to create. Hold on to that feeling. You cannot give that up. The words that you type are your freedom and escape. The sounds you create are your weapon against a world that doesn't favor your protection or survival or recovery. But it's your fight. It's your life to fight for. It's yours to have. At times, you will feel like you're the only girl in the world going through this. But you're not. You never were. You are one of many girls locked in their rooms, glued to a screen, journaling their feelings, writing out the noise they are hearing and making and falling in love with. It was junior high, the peak of the early 2000s, and blog culture was your form of education, your community, your way to trade twee mixtapes and learn about the booming music scenes in New York and Denver and Omaha and Portland and Olympia and Athens. Live Journal would be where your book club met and swapped favorite pages. It was a place of learning and support and dramatic photos of sad-looking girls alone in their bedrooms, standing alone in blurred, grassy backyards, illuminated by a camera's flash reflected in mirrors of suburban bathrooms. It was the digital age of girlhood. We weren't printing out zines on paper or writing our thoughts and dreams with ink onto physical pages to be discovered using golden keys with heart-shaped handles which could be found under frilly pink shams and bedrooms. This was digital. It was password protected. It was a universe of our own. Logins living inside of our minds, transporting you online, would never tell the secrets of our desires, unless we wanted you to find them. We had usernames with X's and zeros, writing sadness in binary code and lyrics with pictures, songs linked above what we wrote to go along with what we were feeling in that moment. Music was everything. The thing that made you feel less alone, living in a small, bleak suburban town. Because no matter how many times you change schools or places, the handfuls of cities that you move to your closest friends, who knew you best, were always in the exact same place, right on your computer screen. Young Rocker. In the early 2000s, my closest friend 
was a boy named Sid online who lived in Canada. Looking back, I'm not sure if he was ever real or just some adult pervert. I wasn't dumb as a kid, and my parents warned me what not to say and say to strangers on the internet. Never give them your last name, never say what school you go to, never send photos or any information about yourself, never say names of family members or what city you lived in or what places you like to hang out. But they never said anything about feelings, about pouring your soul into a chat box in the middle of the night, lit up by a screen in the dark, sharing your deepest, darkest secrets with a cute, grainy picture of a person you met online. One day, Sid just disappeared. And to be honest, I'm not sure if he was ever real at all. It's funny, the dangers we were warned about as internet-aged 90s kids, to be weary of people pretending to be someone else on the internet. Today, decades later, it's common practice to be made up of images. We create complete fabrications of ourselves and our lives to post online, on display for all to see. We are what our parents warned us about. None of us are real anymore, except the moments where the image cracks and we're bursting open where the pixels meet, flooding vulnerability, reaching out, begging for something real, releasing your inner blogger from 2002. Emotional honesty, vulnerability, and sad lyrics under pictures making a comeback, put on display in Instagram captions, hashtag mood, Hashtag motivation, hashtag pride, hashtag survivor, hashtag blessed, hashtag grief, hashtag happy. Until we find ourselves with so much hashtag toxic positivity, we don't know what's real anymore. No longer being able to tell where the post ends and where our reality starts. If you share your experience online, there will always be people who doubt you. If you don't post your trauma online, then it never happened. But if you make yourself vulnerable online, you're playing the victim or you're lying about your circumstances. If you never talk about your hardship online, then it must not be real or affecting you. If you do talk about your hardship online, then you're seen as damaged and broken. But know that through all the bullshit, your lived experience is real, even if you don't post about it online. In 2002, I spent most of the school year in seventh grade crying in the bathroom during each one of my classes, listening to Dashboard Confessional and Bright Eyes' first album, and thinking obsessively about playing guitar. I would fill my notebooks each class period with songs pages of lyrics and instrumentation that I heard with it, paying attention to only half the class lectures. This was the year I had my eye on a red knockoff Gibson SG. Whenever we went into the CD store, I would ask my mother if I could have it for my birthday. I knew we could never afford a real SG, but I didn't care about that. I just wanted a guitar. I needed a guitar. 
I woke up on Friday the 12th, and it was just like any other day in July. My mother was at work all day, and I had the house to myself, like I had every summer since my grandparents left New York. It was my lovely little time to be alone in the house. I could read books in silence, jump around and dance to music, watch TV or shoot little music videos on my family camcorder, whatever I felt like doing. But usually, the first thing I did after rolling out of bed was I'd grab my skateboard and go bomb some hills. The girl next door and I had spent the entire summer trying to rollerblade down her steep driveway, squatting down, getting as close to touching the pavement as we could. It wasn't uncommon that summer to be covered in road rash, scabs that went from our knees to our backsides, screaming out from bathtubs, slowly soaking in pain every night. On my skateboard, I decided to hit one more hill before going inside. And as I got to the part of the street where I usually bunny hop over the sewer lid, I ate it. I laid there for a second and then slowly got up. I didn't cry. I just stood there. And I realized at that moment, I had broken my arm. I wasn't far from my house, maybe only a few blocks, but I knew once I walked home, there would be no one there waiting for me. I knocked on the neighbor's door near where I had the crash, and I asked if I could call my mother at work. Hi, I broke my arm. Is there any way you could call my mother? Well, sure, but I don't think your arm is broken. It doesn't look broken to me. She cautiously let me inside, clenching her pearls, her eyes darting back and forth as if I was running some sort of scam. I sat at her kitchen table while she called my mother, and I listened in on the conversation. Well, no, it doesn't look broken. I think she's just shaken up a bit. Oh, no, it's definitely broken. I chimed in repeatedly, yelling over her. I knew my arm was broken because it felt just like the last time I'd broken my arm. When I was in the fourth grade, I jumped off a slide. Although I was only nine years old, I wore a size nine shoe. I was tall and gangly and wasn't used to having canoes for feet, and my foot caught the edge of the slide. I tripped over the edge and my arm broke my fall. It's a very distinct feeling. I know it's broken. I could hear my mother on the other end of the line of the heavy black phone, which was attached to the wall in her kitchen. The woman held the phone with both hands as she passed it to me. She wants to speak to you. My mother told me she'd be home in an hour and to get ready for dinner. I walked home holding my right arm against my chest. I don't think it's broken. The woman shouted one more time as she waved goodbye to my back. Sulking my way home now, I didn't turn around as I walked away. I knew it was broken. When my mother got home, she wrapped my arm up in some bandages and a makeshift cast and said, We'll go to the hospital another day. Come on, we're going to dinner. I didn't want to go to dinner, to her favorite restaurant, with a broken arm, but I didn't seem to have a choice. Once I got there, I understood why. 
She had made plans with her new boyfriend and couldn't find a way to ditch me with a broken arm. Nadia, this is Kevin. Happy birthday, Nadia. I didn't understand. My birthday wasn't for almost another week. My mother kneeled down to whisper in my face while she straightened my shirt and adjusted my makeshift cast. I thought we could celebrate your birthday tonight. Does that sound good? Okay, I I guess. There was no party. There were no balloons or friends. There was no card or cake or birthday sash to wear. What made this my 12th birthday? I guess because she said it was. I continued to sit there quietly, holding my broken arm against my chest, afraid to let it go or it might fall onto the table and ruin everyone's meal. I was just a fly on the wall while she flirted and laughed louder than I'd ever heard her laugh before. I sat there in silence. No one spoke to me. We were at a pizza place. It's almost impossible to eat a slice of pizza with one hand and a broken arm. So I just sat there, invisible, sulking at the end of the table between the two of them on their date. I didn't eat anything. When the dinner was over, we walked back to the car and my mother opened the trunk to reveal the red guitar that I'd been lusting over for an entire year. The pointed red devil body, the black knobs, the tiny switch that would change the tone. There was no wrapping or case and it was uncomfortable to receive a gift in front of a complete stranger, but I was so happy and thankful. After the weekend, my mother finally took me to the hospital, where they confirmed that my arm was indeed broken and that I wouldn't be able to play my new guitar for over a month. They asked what color cast I wanted, and I told them red and black stripes to pay tribute to my new guitar that I now wouldn't be able to play for another two months. It was torture. I had to quit a number of things that I loved because of my broken arm. I had to quit orchestra. I played the viola, but never was able to read music. I spent weeks after school with my orchestra teacher, going over the sheet music, practicing in front of her, reading line by line together. I just couldn't do it, no matter how hard I tried or how long I practiced. It was easier for me to just listen to the orchestra and play what they were playing. I could play almost anything by ear. The first month I got my viola, before I joined the orchestra, I would sit and play along with commercials and things I heard on television. Britney Spears on MTV, serial commercials, theme songs to television shows. I'd picked up a classmate's cello during one of our breaks and played the cello parts for our spring recital. People in class assumed I had a sibling with a cello, but I had never touched one before. I would shift my focus back and forth, listening to each section's score as I played my viola. And I would think about how the cello would feel against my body. Imagine how I would hold my bow differently and drift my fingers down its neck 
moving the tips of my fingers to bend each note in the placement of where my hands would sit. I'd watch the teacher give demonstrations of each instrument and correct each student. Each time she corrected how they held their bow or instrument, I would mimic what they were doing. I wasn't a very good orchestra student, but I loved to play. Unfortunately, having a broken arm meant I couldn't practice the pieces I was hearing. Missing a month of music would set me way back. Memorizing the sheet music and playing by ear was becoming more and more of a challenge if I wasn't able to play. The teacher would sometimes catch me in the middle of our rehearsals and ask if I had the wrong sheet music. She'd realize I was picking up more of the violin section in my right ear than my viola partner to the left of me. Trying to play catch up with a broken arm and remember all of the pieces without being able to practice felt impossible. The teacher sat me in front of an old desktop computer and made me play music instructional games intended for small children. After a week or so of sitting there, staring at a screen while everyone else played, I realized I would have to quit. I'd never catch up. And the children's music learning games were driving me crazy. I felt like a punishment. My mother made me return my viola back to the store, even though I didn't want to give it up. Having little faith in me, she only invested in a rental. I wish I still had my viola. It would be two months before I could play my guitar. And by the time I could, it would break. Over and over and over and over again. The guitar had bad electrical wiring making it inaudible through any amp. No matter how many times it was repaired, it never worked. My mother paid half price for the floor model. The store was out of all the other instruments, and she bought it the same day she gave it to me on my makeshift birthday. But it didn't matter if my guitar was broken. I was going to record the songs I had written. I dug through our junk drawer and was able to uncover the tape recorder that my parents had spitefully used to record each other's phone conversations during their messy divorce. In the kitchen drawer, jumbled together with a bunch of random house keys, pens that had run out of ink, takeout menus, and scraps of unorganized documents, random relics throughout the last five years, stuck halfway closed, it was our family's time capsule. This was where I would discover the tools to record my first album. I was excited not to have to keep everything I'd written in notebooks and in my head. I had created my own shorthand for music, and now was my chance to finally record everything I had been hearing in my head. Filling up notebooks with songs, writing out little rhythm patterns with symbols I'd created, and words transposed onto chords I learned from other songs, I was finally going to get everything I ever wanted. I was going to get to make music the way I'd always dreamed of. I was going to teach myself Elliot Smith songs and Mira songs and Bikini Kill songs until I had every chord down and I could figure out how to translate all the notebooks I'd been filling this last year. 
I was ready. I'd been preparing for this exact moment, or at least I'd been preparing the best I could. I'd printed out bright eyes tabs from guitarcord.com. I'd been holding my hands, stretching my fingers as far as I could in preparation. This is what I'd been waiting for. I was at the point in my struggle with amnesia that now felt to me like 2002 blogger culture. Everything felt new and angsty and far away. What it feels like to be a 12-year-old girl in the summer. Time is never ending and being alone in your room blogging was the best feeling in the world. I was hoping by now I would be snapping out of it soon because it was almost Halloween, one of my favorite holidays. But there was still a bleakness to my recovery at this point. I thought if I just kept going, if I did what I normally would do at this time of year, some sort of wormhole would bring me back to where I was and had been, and everything would click back into place. It was still hard for my brain to process large spaces, to be in a crowd and be able to speak. I knew that even if it meant being sent back to bed rest for another two weeks, I was going to try and do something to disrupt the stillness. There was a lot of push and pull going on, pushing myself a little each day so my recovery wouldn't be stagnant, but it was a delicate balance. You had to push yourself to the edge so that you wouldn't regress, but if you went over the edge, you would also regress. Sometimes the edge was the simple act of pouring a bowl of cereal. Sometimes it was going to the grocery store. There were times I could type but not talk. There were times I could talk but not use my phone to text. There were times I could go into a store, but if someone ran into me and said hello, I suddenly wouldn't be able to speak. I would open my mouth, but the words wouldn't leave. I would think the words, but not be able to say them. Carts and people would push past. Groups of girls having conversations with one another. Babies screaming in the background. I couldn't speak. The words felt caught in the air. When I could type, I would sit in my room blogging away like I was a preteen. It felt like I was jumping from being stuck in a toddler-like stage, unable to speak or call for help, to reliving my preteen blogging years, writing about my feelings and trying to keep myself afloat. The isolation felt like being a 12-year-old girl all over again. The inability to speak when your crush walks by, the loneliness that you feel, that makes you feel somber and safe. Back when most friendships were all online, I remember getting messages from strangers cheering me on. But who knows? Maybe they weren't strangers. At other times, it felt like there was no one. 
technically, the way time moved, there was no one. Minutes and hours at this point felt like days. I waited for time to click back into a more natural rhythm. But it felt like it would last forever. Kind of like how it feels when you're a preteen. It feels like you'll never grow up. All those emotions, riding the bus, dissolving into the seat of a car while looking out the window, listening to Death Cab's The Photo Album on your cassette player. Back when summer vacation felt endless. That's what amnesia was starting to feel like. It often felt like being a 12-year-old girl, crying alone in your room to Constantine on repeat until you felt like you'd had enough. There were times it was kind of uplifting, like dancing around your room listening to Fever to Tell, jumping up and down singing along to every lyric, singing into your fist dancing in front of your mirror. It felt like the loneliness of being just a girl in her bedroom. The world doesn't exist yet. It's only you there. And also the stubbornness that exists alongside your naivete. There are moments looking back on my time with amnesia that feel so embarrassing in the same way you feel about moments from your youth. Watching your younger self stumble while trying to talk to your first crush or writing your first email to someone. I didn't know who I was at this point. It all just felt like pieces scattered about that I couldn't place back together. Today I walked into my room, realized it was hot, and turned the fan on. I'm making strides and finally piecing things together. I wrote in my online diary, not realizing how far I actually had to go. I'd been spending so much time at home alone in silence, I thought it would be nice to go out and try to test the waters and go to my friend's Halloween show. I didn't have time to plan a costume and wasn't sure if I was going to feel good enough when the time came, but I was going to try. The only thing I could throw together at the last minute was dressing up as Margot Tenenbaum because I had a vintage Lacoste dress and some eyeliner and a fur coat. The first month of amnesia, I'd spent trying to dress myself, often without realizing what was weather appropriate, wearing pants and long sleeves and extreme heat to doctor's appointments. I would end up crying and screaming out, Why am I wearing pants right now? Why didn't I realize this was a bad idea? It's basically still summer. What is happening to me? Sobbing, begging for some sort of explanation from a doctor. So angry at myself for not being able to realize. Nate kept reminding me to be patient. He said it would all come back to me. Just be patient. It will all come back to you. Nate came over on Halloween to pick me up. He drew black whiskers on his face with a grease pencil. I was excited to try and go to a show at Star Bar in Little Five. I missed music and people and shows. I stood in the crowd, unable to speak, 
the crowd standing shoulder to shoulder, huddled up to the front of the stage around me, making me feel safe and at home. It felt like being a kid again, going to a show for the first time. Not because I was excited, but because I felt so far away. Far away from any understanding or knowing where I was. It all felt so new. Even though I'd been performing and going there for over seven years. A girl I remembered, Jennifer, waved from across the side of the stage, excited to see me, mouthing, I'm so glad you came out. I'm so happy to see you. She had been reading my amnesia blog posts. Like seeing a live journal friend out in the wild, I was excited to be a person surrounded by real people again and felt so supported by a community in this moment. Surrounded by all my friends and musicians and kids from art school. I nodded. I could understand her and appreciate her kindness, but I couldn't really respond with words. All the sounds and people talking around me made it difficult for the connection between my mouth and my brain to create a steady and consistent flow of communication. By the end of the night, I felt completely drunk from all the stimulation. I started to slip back into a light fog and I gave Nate the signal to take me home. On the car ride home, I thought about all the things I had missed. The drunken girl bathroom conversations, passing toilet paper from underneath the stall doors, exchanging gossip and who they wanted to sleep with, whose ex was there, who they didn't want showing up and who they were hoping would. The angst of it all, the lust of it all, the writing and stickers and graffiti on the bathroom mirrors, the stickiness of the floor, that one toilet that was always overflowing, filled with vomit and paper towels, the last stall door on the right that would never lock. You would have to ask a stranger if they wouldn't mind holding the door shut for you. It was a time in music that doesn't seem to exist anymore. Dive bars where everyone gathered before the city was overtaken with greed and the punk and DIY scene thrived. Misfits gathered in vacant buildings in what felt like a forgotten city where it felt like the city was ours and only ours. Us and the loudness that we created. It was another moment in time that I thought would never slip away. With amnesia, everything was light and fluffy and it felt like everyone was my friend and supportive and life was pure. Like when you're a kid and it feels like everyone is someone to trust and believe and everyone is so nice. And then that first mean thing is ever done to you. We were only there for an hour or so before we both decided it would be best for me to head back home. Hey, ready to go? I got in Nate's car and he drove us back to my house. You know, I wasn't going to say anything, but I just wanted to be honest with you. 
there's some people who don't believe you. Believe what? I literally couldn't even think of what he was talking about. About having amnesia. They think you're faking it. I burst into tears. Like who? Just some people. Who? A few people. I tried to explain to them how bad it's been. Okay, who? Just a person I work with. Jennifer. It felt like grade school all over again. It felt worse than grade school. Being so vulnerable because I had no other space to express and cope with what I was going through. I'd been sharing what was happening to me online, truly thinking no one was ever actually going to read what I was writing on my blog. It felt like learning a life lesson all over again about putting my feelings up online. I should have known better than to be this vulnerable and honest. I should have known something. I should have thought, thought something. I sobbed uncontrollably. Nate said that some people weren't going to understand. They just don't get it. I see you, it is real, and I know it. I believe you. And that it didn't matter what other people thought. But it didn't matter to me. The severity of what was happening to me was hard enough to explain. I knew I wasn't all there. But I looked fine, so I must be faking it. I could sometimes speak, so it didn't matter when I couldn't. Or if I slurred or felt confused. It didn't matter that I was doing everything I could. Trying to laugh it off. Trying to play it off. Trying to write it off. Trying to heal and cope. The tasks I set up for myself every day. Tasks that I sometimes failed at. The patch of skin forever scarred, singed from one of those failures. The fact that school was something that had come easily to me and now it felt like I couldn't even read. And I definitely couldn't remember anything I was learning. My brain was completely broken. I had to push myself and was often punished by my own brain. And now, I was being punished and doubted by someone who had been sending me messages of encouragement. The type of misunderstood I was feeling at this point was already very junior high. I already felt so much isolation. I decided to pull back even more. I wasn't sure who I could trust at this point, who didn't believe me and who was lying about believing me. I took to my blog because I wasn't in a mental state to know any better. Never trust a stranger on the internet. And in the modern age when we're all just made up of images, is anyone not a stranger? People can interpret your life however they want. Again, I felt like I was in a preteen state, still learning confidence and how to emotionally regulate and understand the world around me. 
This was like sixth grade, when you realized your closest friend hates your other friends. This was your biggest crush telling you he liked you and then the next week dating the girl who sat in front of you in math class, watching as she drew hearts around his name instead of taking notes. This was your first boyfriend in seventh grade breaking up with you and telling everyone you didn't put out, so he went with the easier redheaded girl. This was finally attending your first sleepover in middle school and realizing you had nothing in common with anyone there, so you left and never went back. So that's what I did. I left. I left the venue and I left everyone and anyone I thought didn't believe me. I walked away realizing a lesson I had already learned once before as a child, and I learned it again. Moments like this had to be relearned. I was drugged with this fog that made me too trusting until this moment. It was the innocence of childhood folding back and peeling away as I started to recover biting down eager with hunger and trust into rotten fruit, piecing together pain and bitterness, the consequences of the human condition. My brain was recovering, learning, and trying to remember. You never know what you can trust, even from yourself. listening to Dear Young Rocker, Season 4. We've got 12 episodes coming this season. Check back every Wednesday for new episodes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to share your own Young Rocker experience, you can follow me on Instagram at Nadia Marie Forever. You can also follow us at Dear Young Rocker and at Double Elvis on Instagram. This season of Dear Young Rocker is written and hosted by me, Nadia Marie. Dear Young Rocker was created by and is executive produced by Chelsea Erson. The show is executive produced by Jake Brennan, Brady Sadler, and Carly Carioli for Double Office. Script editing on this episode by Chelsea Erson and James Sullivan. Production by Sean Cahalan and Leah Titoris. Music for this episode was composed and performed by me, Nadia Marie. You can check out my music, Nadia Marie, on all streaming platforms. Thanks. We'll see you next week.